Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm talking to Bob Baker, who is the William D. Williams Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at Union College and Professor of Bioethics at Clarkson University School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Bob is here representing his friend, his late friend and colleague, Wayne Cooper, who published a translation of a Nazi textbook of medical ethics with Springer in 2019. This book is called Medical Jurisprudence and Rules of the Medical Profession. It was originally written by a Nazi leader and physician named Rudolf Rahm, and Professor Baker's going to tell us a little bit about it. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Bob, can you start by giving us a little bit of background on this project? Who was Wayne Cooper? Okay, Wayne Cooper. So um, for 20 years, uh, 20 years ago, I started a uh, an online, a hybrid online on-site uh, bioethics program for healthcare professionals originally who wanted to get more training originally in clinical ethics and then later in bioethics more generally uh, so that anybody, virtually anywhere in the world, uh, if they had a couple of weeks off during the summers, uh, could get a master's in bioethics. Uh, One of the people who signed on was a uh, Texas physician Melvin Wayne Cooper. Um, he liked to be called Wayne rather than Melvin, so I'm going to refer to him as, as Wayne. And um, he took the course and did well and so on. And then when it came time to write a thesis, he said that when he was serving in the U.S. military in Germany, he had picked up enough German and he came across a book which was a a really a Nazi medical ethics textbook, and he thought that it's something that ought to be translated into English, and would that be an appropriate uh, project for his master's thesis? 
And I said, yes. I pointed out that my knowledge of German, my German uh, faculty, my German professors used to call it Delicatessen Deutsch uh, because it got, um, I have relatives and friends from all over Eastern Europe and it got garbled, uh, not so much in translation, but when it came out of my mouth. So uh, it wasn't very good, but we decided we'd go ahead anyway. When he finished, um, it it was fine for a master's thesis, and I thought it ought to be published. So I sent it out for review before I submitted it to one of the publishers I work with, and um, came back with lots of questions and objections. And I it gave me pause, and I handed that over to Wayne. And I said, look, if you can address all of these, I'll go out and get you a publisher and you'll be in print. It was a long list and it took almost a decade before he had worked his way through it. And his working the way through it became the the prefatory material for this translation. Um, Let me, so Wayne eventually did it. Um, There were still a few lingering questions. I asked him to address it. He addressed those. And a couple of years before he died, I submitted it to uh, Springer and one of the, and they produced it. Unfortunately, it's in that blue bound series they have that does philosophy of medicine, where all the books look exactly the same. And at a conference, when there's on-site conferences, No one is attracted to picking one out. And it's got this, as you pointed out, god-awful title. Nobody even knows that it's about Nazi medical ethics. And it kind of got buried when COVID hit. So I felt very badly about it, and I was happy to uh, introduce it to some sessions on the Holocaust where people were actually very interested and didn't realize the translation existed and uh, talked about it with survivors um, and asked for their reflections on it. And now I'm talking about the book uh, on your podcast. As you were chatting with me before we started, you pointed out that was really a difficult book to to read, to address. And I suggested that's for two reasons. The first part of the book is about uh, the deprofessionalization of medicine. One of the very first things the Nazis did when the, the Nationalist Socialist Workers Party did, the Nazis did, when they took over power in 1933 after the German elections, a little bit after that, because it was the, and when they took over in 1933, um, was began a great scheme to deprofessionalize uh, German medicine. This the, the, One of the things that I like to quote from Rahm's book is their critique of what they called bourgeois liberal medicine. It hadn't provided German doctors with a good living. That was one of the 
selling points for the book and for the Nazis. One of the reasons why the physicians backed, overwhelmingly backed the Nazi ascendancy to power. Um, They saw that they couldn't make a living basically, under the way the, the current scheme. And the uh, Nazis promised them they were going to make them state officials. They would be uh, an arm of the state. They would have to be, so they would institute social medicine, which was a, 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 a longstanding idea in uh, ideal in German medicine, and they'd be respected. Uh, And all of these were very attractive to German physicians. And so the first part is all the rigmarole that you get when you take um, health care insurance and when you take uh, uh, the various professional societies in German medicines and the honor courts and everything else, and you roll them into one bureaucratic structure. So that's what you read about and why it's called regulations. That's what you read about in the beginning of the book. Unless you're a German scholar, unless you're an interested, got an interest in bureaucracies, nobody in their right mind, and therefore you're in your right mind in not in finding that dreadfully dull to get through and seemingly irrelevant. Well, who were the who were the readers of this book, the original text? The original text, um, the English translation, or the actual German text? The the actual the 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 book the the original originally who was it written for? Ah, okay. The idea was to retrain the and starting with the first generation, the German medical profession in a new form of medical ethics. This was Rassen hygiene. It was uh, racial hygiene. It was a form of social medicine which put the people, folk, above everything else and the germline, the future of the people above any other people and above the present generation. So you should be willing to put to sacrifice elements of the present generation of people occupying Germany in order to facilitate a future, a noble future for the German folk, the German race. That was the basic idea of this new ethics. And so they wanted to take up, they wanted to absorb what they could about some aspects of traditional, what they called Hippocratic medical ethics, and go back to its real Aryan roots, which had a broader vision of racial hygiene and racial morality. And this book was required for every medical student studying in any medical institution in Germany from 1942 to the end of the to the surrender in 1945. Uh, It was also required of anybody doing master's or PhD work, and they all had to take required lectures, and they all had to take exams and so on on this book. So this is the textbook for Nazi medicine. This is Nazi medical ethics, but yes, it is the, the... 
the only significant source we've got on natural uh, Nazi medical ethical education, and it was the, uh, the the textbook, as Bob as Robert Proctor points out in his writings on this. Uh, it's wrong to think of the Nazis as mad scientists who had no ethics. That's just wrong. The problem with the Nazis is the Nazi doctors is they had an ethics. And it was that ethics that legitimated um, the destruction of children, the killing of children who had genetic anomalies or who had what they called considered birth defects, the destruction of people with this, the killing of people with um, with uh, mental disabilities, with physical disabilities, um, the and of course the Holocaust, the uh, genocide of um, of uh, Roma, and of course most notoriously of Jews. So, tell us, um, I, Nazi medical ethics does sound like an oxymoron, though a little bit. Okay, the reason we think of medical ethics as facilitating how to help sick people and how to prevent the ethics of preventing well people from getting sick. Um, It's got that dual aspects. Racial hygiene, Rassen hygiene, has the same idea, except instead of talking about individual people, it talks about folk. That's a people connected to each other by culture, by language, by geography, and genetically. All four parts of it. So if, if, if you're a, a fan of Heidegger, and in many of his work, he talks about the fact that nomads are not a real people, that's actually Nazi doctrine. Because a real people would be connected in these four ways, genetically, geographically, um, gene- uh, linguistically, and culturally. And so if you don't have a homeland, if you don't have a genetic, a geographical connection, you can't be a real people. And hence, Heidegger thought of the nomads as parasitic on other peoples. Yeah, which again is Nazi doctrine. So it's not these doctrines that you're going to find in this textbook are not unique to Rom. They're not even unique to uh, Nazi party propaganda. They were widespread among the German intelligentsia from the ninth, from the formation of the Nazi party in the 1920s right up to 1945. And they were often perpetuated in, um, in, in, in somewhat subtle disguise uh, to this present day. So this is, this is horrible stuff though. Why, how might the English translation of this book be used in classrooms today? Why translate this book? Why, you know, make it available for a wide reading audience? Um, so let's talk about medical students in the medical classroom. Um, I, when I first started as a bioethicist, I got a grant. I had a crazy theory, and I convinced the foundation to back me. And I spent a 
year in medical school, and I attended medical school classes and rounds, and um, and uh, morbidity and mortality rounds in which you, they dissected people to find out dead people, dead people to find out um, what what was the pathology that actually caused them to die, and whether or not the diagnosis was correct. Um, one of the greatest pathologies to hit Western medicine was the Holocaust and specifically physicians' complicity in the Holocaust and everything that was involved in the way people were treated as lab rats and so on, all this stuff. And it's very important if you want to understand this pathology just as you, 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 you need to understand moral pathology in exactly the same way you do physical pathology, you got to do an autopsy. You have to get the understanding of what went wrong right and what this common view that the Nazi doctors were madmen, the Nazi doctors had a mental illness, the Nazi doctors were sadists, the Nazi doctors were unethical. It's just wrong. There were sadists and there were unethical people amongst the Nazi doctors and there was and so on. That's true. But most of them believed a pathological morality. It was a morality. It was an ethics. Morality, it was what they believed was right and what they believed was wrong. They saw themselves purifying the gene pool in the name of a noble cause to build a better race, a healthier, happier, um, more successful race in the competition between races. Um, That's what they saw themselves as doing. It was patriotic, it was noble, and it was medical. And if you don't understand how medical ethics can become pathological, then you're leaving yourself open for a recurrence of the disease. Just as if you make misdiagnosis in your treatment of your patients, you're going to keep on having bad outcomes until you get it right. So one of the reasons why painful as it is to read that the book It ought to be read and taught because we don't want to get the diagnosis wrong as we continually have. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And it is it is painful to read, I have to say. Um, Textbooks in general, they sort of um, they're not as a genre. They're they're not particularly interesting reading. But this textbook actually made me a little bit sick to my stomach. Like it was very difficult difficult to get through. Um, I wondered if you could give our listeners a sense of the style and tone of this Nazi, book of Nazi medical ethics. Oh, yes, you do. Um, let me get a... So I'm working on a book in which I discuss Nazi medical ethics as the foundation, the rejection of Nazi medical ethics as the foundation for... Um, modern medical ethics, and I just closed that stuff down. Let me get it. I'm opening it up, and there's a chapter entitled Nazi Medical Ethics. So let me get to that. Okay. 
I can snooze that, and I'm fooling around on the computer. If anybody's interested, it's going through stuff, and I need to. Um, no, that that that's a that's a 17th century preacher. Chapter two, Nazi medical ethics. Okay, this is a chapter that I. This is what I, the, the paragraph from Rom's text uh, that I chose to open it and let me see. During the powerful upheaval of the intellectual and moral structure of the German folk, the National Socialist Revolution, that's the Nazi Revolution, there was a fundamental rearrangement of the ideal conception of medicine. The overpowering individualism of the liberal age had also influenced the thinking of the physician and produced a purely individualistic professional conception of the physician and the entirety of medical science with the inexorable racial decline uh, and steeped with continuously growing clarity towards the day of the death of the folk. There was, however, no way for them to stop this catastrophe. All right. So what this is showing is that Liberal medicine, that's what he's talking about, medicine as practiced in the West during the 1930s uh, in Germany, was going to lead to the decline of the people and uh, the death of the race. A complete change first occurred when Adolf Hitler succeeded in snatching the German folk back from the brink of decay to show the way from the doctrine of the individual to that of becoming the physician to the nation. Fulfilling these two duties presupposes that each individual physician must change his attitude and that the entire medical community must undertake a moral, intellectual uh, renewal. So that's Rahm's text. Let me uh, read a little bit more of what I follow it up with. In a prior book, uh, this is a manuscript, not yet a book, uh, I wrote on moral revolutions. And that line of moral revolutions comes from an observation from from the English philosopher John Stuart Mill, who wrote that all political revolutions not affected by foreign conquest originate in moral revolutions. I then say, like other early proponents of National Socialism, that is Nazism, Rudolf Rahm, who was born in 1887 and who was executed by the Soviets in 1945, viewed himself as leading a moral and political revolution to to reverse the decay of the German folk caused by the overpowering individualism of the liberal age. What he's referring to was Germany's post-World War I Weimar period from 1918 to 1933, during which a democratic republic survived a period of hyperinflation and paramilitary clashes to prosper in a brief golden era, era from 1924 to 1929 when the stock market crash uh, barreled it into the Great Depression. 
Okay, so that's the, the beginning of that. This is, I'm claiming, a moral revolution. If you think of what Nazi medical ethics in any other way, however nasty, however horrific was the, the acts of the doctors, then you're misdiagnosing the pathology. What was wrong, what went wrong, was a, a, a bad conception of what medicine is all about. It, and it's very important that we understand this because right now, in the context of COVID-19 uh, pandemic, people are looking to change the focus of medicine from individuals to something like social medicine. And they're also talking about things like punishing outliers, people who don't wear masks or don't get vaccines in the name of social medicine. And it's very reminiscent of the attack that the National Socialists took in 1933. So we want to understand what they did and what how to understand it properly so that we don't make the mistakes that they made. We want to understand the pathology so that we can correct potential illnesses in the way we might be tempted to head. That makes sense. It does. Um, can we talk a little bit about the content of the book? So, what um, what does it co- what does it cover? What does the book cover? The first half covers bureaucratic stuff. Um, if you are interested in professionalization and deprofessionalization, it is a roadmap to how you deprofessionalize medicine. You take each little bit that um, health insurance systems or uh, practitioners groups or uh, medical societies did, and you transform them, you transubstantiate them into state functions. So basically, it's a roadmap to having the state take take over all of medicine and transforming doctors into state workers. The second half of the book is uh, much more interesting, to me at least, maybe not to somebody else. Um, So what that does is it, it, it argues that um, racial medicine is the true heir of the Hippocratic tradition. That uh, the Hippocratic tradition is a tradition in which physicians work together, and they work together uh, by taking preventive measures to help people not get sick. And it's also was nationalistic because when Hippocrates was asked to help non-Greek peoples, most specifically the invading invading Persians, um, he refused to do so. So it was a patriotic, racially based medicine preventive medicine for the people. And that's just what this new concept of social medicine, racial hygiene is, racial hygiene is. Um, And it also 
then be, incorporates a series of things that were in uh, the German medical tradition from 1895 onwards. And although, the, and the two things are the first, the concept of racial hygiene, which was introduced, I'm um, blocking on who it was, um, I think by Plutz in 1895 into the, the German medical lexicon and had nothing. And at that time, the Jews were thought of as a racially superior group. The Nazis adopted the, uh, the concept of racial hygiene, but made the Jews a racially inferior group that was dangerous to the, uh, the gene pool of the, of the folk. The other thing that it took on was a concept that Yost introduced in the same year, uh, which is the right to die. And that was really, Yost had, was a psychiatrist, a neurologist or psychiatrist, um, who suffered from severe bouts of depression. And one of the arguments of that book was that individuals who suffered like this had a right to be killed by the state. Um, so there is for there is a right to die, which is a responsibility that the state could take on for individuals who were problematic for themselves or for their families or to society. And it's that last little bit that the Nazis sucked up and you find in uh, Ram's textbook. Uh, so you've got, and then you've got another thing that came out in the 1920s by Hoche, I mispronounced that one, H-O-C-H-E, who is again a psychiatrist. And he argued, forgive my German, but Lebens and Verdens Leben, people who are living a life not worthy of being lived, um, also had a right to be killed. And the state had a right to kill them. So this, there are these ideas that some lives have negative values. And if people's lives have negative value, there's a right for them to be killed and for the state to have a right to kill them. And this is rolled in very lightly in, uh, and very discreetly in Ram's textbook. For example, my, my favorite example of this is the right to confidentiality. Um, uh, and, uh, he discusses this at length, and this is, of course, a right that traces back to uh, the Hippocratic Oath. It is clearly part of the Hippocratic tradition, and since the Nazis want to absorb the Hippocratic tradition as the basis of racial hygiene, uh, as an Aryan ethic, uh, they sometimes put it, although Ram doesn't put it that way, um, that they... Uh, they pay special attention to it. And they point out to the individual patient, to the individual member of the folk, to those patients, you have a duty of confidentiality. But since the duty to the race is primary, whenever those conflict, 
you always act in ways that serve the interests of the race. More specifically, when you go into practice, if you discover that any of your patients have physical or mental disabilities, you must notify the hereditary courts and they will require these patients to come before them and they will treat them, they will as needed, which in fact meant that they'd be taken to a hospital and killed. So all of this is very discreetly done. It's married to the Hippocratic heritage. And it's, you know, there is never any direct discussion of killing people or what would go on at Hadmar Psychiatric Hospital or anything. It's just you take them to the hereditary authorities and you do your bit for the race. I mean, one of the things, look, so one of the things that was interesting is um, if you read the, one of the things I try to do in uh, this chapter and in some other places is point out what happens if people follow this advice. Um, and what happens is people end up being exterminated. Uh, so you, I talk about Akyon T4, which is not mentioned in the book. Um, and yet that was the consequence of doing what was recommended in the book. Well, I want to, um, I want to change up our traditional final question a little bit since this is, um, uh, you you are representing your, your colleague here, and this is not a book that you have written. Um, you are working on a book right now, um, provisionally titled, I think, Making Modern Medical Ethics. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit about how um, Cooper's translation of Rom relates to your current book project? Sure. The title of that book, the working title is, uh, I'll see if prof- uh, publishers uh, uh, buy, I mean, I, I often have problems with a publisher I've worked through on one project which is nice and respectable. If I give them something that's not so respectable, I have to take it to somebody else. So we'll see what happens with this one. At any rate, the, the, the title is Making Modern Medical Ethics. That's a nice, respectable title. Um, a History of How African-Americans, Anti-Nazisms, Anti-Nazism, Bureaucrats, commissions, feminists, think tanks, veterans, and whistleblowing moralists created bioethics. Um, All those people, African-Americans, anti-Nazism, bureaucrats, commissions, feminists, think tanks, veterans, whistleblowing moralists created by, except for whistleblowing uh, moralists, and commissions, virtually all that other stuff is left out of traditional histories of medical ethics. Now, the part that links to um, Wayne's book, uh, Cooper's book, is he was a veteran. Um, And like many veterans, he was disturbed, a, a, a military doctor. He served in the U.S. military. And there's a long line of uh, Wayne Cooper, uh, of veterans who serve in the U.S. military or in the British military who end up 
uh, creating many of the foundations of my of modern bioethics. So just to stick to them. Um, it was the veterans who found the World Medical Association who revised the Hippocratic Oath as the Declaration of Geneva, who created the first workable uh, code of research ethics. The Nuremberg Code was, for many reasons, not a usable code. Um, and, um, and what I argue in this book is that their rejection of Nazi medical ethics, which they recognized as such, led them to fashion these documents. Um, it's also, just to continue on the veterans, um, uh, Beecher, of course, was a veteran of both the, the World War II. I'm not sure about the Korean War, but he certainly was a veteran of the Cold War. And it was what some of the nasty things he did in that war that gave him the, the nagged at his conscience, which turned him into a whistleblower. Uh, Peter Buxton, whose father was Jewish, who I'm not sure what his personal religion was, whose grandfather served with the Nazis in World War II and claimed to be a protester um, and who knew about the Nazis, who, of course, famously blew the whistle on Tuskegee in an effective way. Um, it was... Uh, Papworth, of course, who was a veteran of World War II, who served in North Africa not, uh, in the British contingent. That And uh, Beecher, of course, first served in North Africa in the American contingent. Both were physicians there, uh, who was, was the other famous whistleblower for British uh, versions of bioethics and so on. So it, there's a deep connection between veterans who's Veteran status is just omitted from the standard uh, histories who actually became the drivers that lead to bioethics. Um, Anti-Nazism is the reason why it's not American individualism, but anti-Nazism was the reason why the individual and faithfulness to the individual patients just is so emphatically stressed in all the foundational doc documents of modern medical ethics. Um, think tanks are in the traditional stuff, although they the, the, the founders were dissonants from Roman Catholicism, which is also interesting. Uh, feminists are neglected. Female, uh, the role of female bureaucrats are neglected in standard history. Um, commissions are written about. That's basically the elements that go into it. But I was fascinated by all the stuff that's left out of the standard histories. Just like, you know, Rom's book isn't part of the standard corpus for teaching bioethics, whereas I believe at least uh, a couple of sessions on it should be, and on the Holocaust, and on the complicity of the Nazi doctors, and on the Nuremberg trials where... Brandt, Brandt, Karl Brandt is the father of Action T4, which is the um, which was the initiative to cleanse the gene pool of uh, genetic disabilities, and so led to the killing of, of thousands of children 
born with a mental or physical or physical disability. Um, and he always claimed that he was moral. And he argued that what he did was ethical and to let these people into the gene pool is unethical. And he made that plea at the Nuremberg trial. So not knowing not see medical ethics means you can't even understand why these people at the Nuremberg trial claim to be innocent and more moral than their prosecutors. Well, Bob, um, I've t- we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I, I want to thank you for bringing this book to um, our audience. And um, you'll have to come back on the show when you're making modern medical ethics book about the role of anti-Nazism in founding um, modern well, bioethics. It's African-Americans, anti-Nazism, bureaucrats, commissions, feminists, think tanks, vetro- veterans, and whistleblowing moralists created bioethics. I mean, that's the subtitle, but it's easy to remember. Sure, sure. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Take care now.